On this episode of Inside MusicCast, we take you to Rio de Janeiro to chat with a multifaceted musician whose music explores many avenues, including jazz, soul, MPB, rock, funk, and a deep love for the West Coast sound, Ed Mata. Since launching his solo career in 1990, Ed has released 13 albums containing these various musical elements, but it was his 2013 release, AOR, that caught our attention here at Inside MusicCast. For lovers of that smooth West Coast vibe, AOR became an instant classic. Earlier this year, Ed followed up AOR with Perpetual Gateways, a record that again explores similar West Coast territory, but takes a journey into some well-crafted jazz and includes some heavy-duty guest musicians, including Hubert Laws, Greg Fillengains, Patrice Ruchin, and Marvin Smitty-Smith. Needless to say, Ed Mata is a musician's musician, and we're excited to have him here with us today. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Ed Mata. Hey, Ed, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Welcome. How's the uh, weather down there in Rio? Actually, it was supposed to be hotter today, but it's kind of cloudy, kind of sh- with some showers and everything. It's yeah. kind of a, a little bit humid those mm. days. Sounds good These- to us. We're, we're, we're very much the opposite where we are. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty cold here today. <laughs> Imagine, yeah, this is the winter time in there, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. Well, Ed, we've wanted to have you on the show for several years, so as they say in Rio, Benvinda, it's welcome to Inside Music Cast, okay? Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah you know, first, you're not, you're not only famous for your music, and me and Rick were talking about this earlier today, but you're also famous for your record collection. You post some of the most amazing photos, yeah. and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners, Rick, have, have seen those images yeah. of, of the collection. It's amazing. Uh, it is amazing. <laughs> how, how many albums do you actually have in your whole collection, Ed? Oh, wow. I have almost 30,000. Oh, my fine. gosh. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> 30,000. Well, well, yeah. If I recall, if I read correctly, the first album that you ever bought was uh, Led Zeppelin's Physical Graffiti. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was this one. I mean, actually, I had some things before, but as a record collector, I I might say this was the very first one. But before, uh, I think um, I had some things that were playing on the radio. In, in the in the late seventies, mm-hmm. like Zoom and Fire, like Cool and the Gang, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, wow. that's amazing. So Led Zeppelin started this whole mess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And and I remember in that period, I used to play drums on a on a rock band, and also sing in another rock band. Mm-hmm. So most of my my. My atmosphere, music atmosphere in that period, in that teenage in the years, it was pretty much rock, mm-hmm. rock from the 70s, Humble Pie, Cactus, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, The Who, and yeah, Roddy Gallagher, Johnny Winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so tell us because while we're on the subject, you're talking to us about about where you know you really started in, in the music and in, in the rock bands. But your your you, your first band, tell us about the first band. It was uh, we read on the website. It was it's called Kabbalah, and you were the vocalist. Tell us the type of band that this was in. What uh, what kind of music was this that you were doing it? It was it was a band um, in in my neighborhood, and the uh, the leader and the composer was the bass player. Mm-hmm. And this band was pretty much inspired by Deep Purple and Trapeze, Free, 
that kind of soul rock. Yeah. Rock with the with a soul touch, with a certain soul vein. And then, uh, I mean, it was Kabbalah. And, and through this interest about this soul rock, somehow the, the blue stuff too that I used to, to study a little bit and, and to buy records and things, I went to, to, uh, to the soul funk material very heavy, I mean, starting to collect this and to play this and to, I mean, this. And, and in fact, I mean, in my family, I'm, I am, um, my uncle, Tim Maia, he was the guy, he's like the Brazilian James Brown. Yeah. He was, he was the guy that, I mean, the first one to, to, to play soul funk in Brazil. Yeah. In late 60s, early, early 70s. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, so he, he recorded lots of albums in, in the 80s. Also, there's a compilation in in United States uh, released by David Byrne from, from Talking Heads. Oh, wow. About my uncle, yeah, about Tim Maia. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were obviously raised in Brazil, but tell us about the music uh, in your life growing up. I mean, what was the early music you were listening to there in Rio. And the way I understand it, you weren't really all that into Brazilian music, were you? Yeah, no. It's not only me. I might say that a good part of my generation, um, these people were a lot influenced by the by the U.S. and U.K. material, a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's pretty much because of the magazines, because of of TV programs that that we used to see also here in Brazil, like uh, uh, Midnight Midnight Special, right? And Don Kirshner Rock Concert, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah, it was it was huge here every Saturday, so people used to, to be all together to see Don Kirshner Rock Concert with yeah. from from Rare Earth to Black Oak Arkansas. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, to, to I mean, to different things. I mean, from mountain to I mean, to all of this is Iron Butterfly, sure. all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Moby Grape. Yeah, the, the the rock from the sixties and seventies. Yeah, sure, exactly. And then came came the soul funk, and then the jazz. The jazz because because Steely Dan. Yeah, and, and also because the film. Blow up from Antonioni and Herbie Hancock. Oh yeah, soundtrack in there. Yeah, it was. I I went to a small cinema that used to to have just European material and things, and I went to see that movie because of Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck because yeah. of the the Yardbirds on on Blow Up. Yeah, mm -hmm. because of and then I get in touch with Herbie Hancock in that in that movie. Mm -hmm. And that started all of the jazz craziness. It's amazing. Hey, Ed, I was just curious, though. Um, you were talking about how a lot of this music that you discovered, a lot of this, you know, progressive classic rock from the 60s and 70s was um, music that, you know, you, you mentioned you, you learned about it through magazines. You learned about it through, you know, movies. But, but was that stuff being played on the radio uh, during that time in, in your area? Yes, 
um, there was a radio station called Fluminense, which was, um, it's kind of close to Rio. It's like Oakland to, to San Francisco. Okay, sure. Yeah. And I mean, and this radio, people used to play sometimes the whole Quadrophenia complete, like blah, yeah, right. the whole album. Mm-hmm. And things like that. I mean, to play Humble Pie, Live at Few More, the whole thing. And yeah, what, there was a radio even before I was younger. But this radio was even more artistic, more radical regarding the, um, the, the rare records and rare stuff. And, right. You know, I found it interesting that, you know, when you actually learned about Brazilian music, it was from an Englishman uh, when you were in the UK, a guy named DJ Mitch. And how, yeah. did a, how did a bloke from the UK turn you on to your own country's music? <laughs> yeah, actually, I mean, the, b- before he taught me, about the Brazilian groove things okay. that I, I only my uncle was doing that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and um, but I was already kind of in touch with Brazilian music because jazz, because Bill Evans. Right. Because Bill Evans playing, I went to Jobim. I went to 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 the music of my country. I mean, that's sure. great. And I started to relate that, oh, so there's jazz chords in Brazil all the time, and blah, blah, blah. So um, it was this. And, and Mitch, uh, which was very, very first person to book me in Europe, mm-hmm. okay, back to the early 90s, um, he showed me lots of things from here that I had no idea. I mean, uh, I mean, even jazz, free jazz from here, lots of different things. That's really interesting. You know, you're talking about the jazz, and we're, we're going to be talking about that a little bit more. And uh, you know, as as we start feeling your love for jazz in uh, perpetual gateways a little later on. But you know, here here at Inside Music Cast, we've always loved AOR music, and uh, you know, the and obviously that's Steely Dan, Graydon, Vanelli, Giroux, and Earth Wind and Fire. So, how old were you when you when did your ears Get a taste for this new type of uh, of genre. Do you remember the album, or how, how old were you, and what were you doing when you sort of uh, discovered this this new feel, this new sound? I mean, to be honest, for mm-hmm. example, the the terminology. I get in touch with the terminology through the Japanese in in the two thousand. Yeah. Okay. AOR. Yeah. The, but the music itself, I grew up with this. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up with Alice Brothers and David Gates and and, and Gino Vanelli, and sure. it was playing heavy here on the radio all the time. Yeah, all of these guys. I mean, uh, Toto, Steely Dan, um, Marty Bowling with Hearts, and yeah, lots of things. Earth yeah. was huge all over the world. Well, it was. Yeah, I went to see Earth and Fire with my father and my mother in 1981. Really? Yeah, in Rio when they played here, and they made actually a, a CD, live CD that was released just in Japan, live in Rio. Wow! And I was there with my family, and I remember that concert a lot. That must have been a cool concert. Oh, it was perfect! Wow! <laughs> Can you imagine? Then right in the 
That's when, right when they were in the heyday of uh, of, of their whole their, their movement, their sound. Yeah, I mean, it was um, right after I am, isn't it? Let's prove it. It was super tight. Wow. It was, yeah. it was incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I read something about you, Ed, that made me curious. And that um, I think you mentioned one time that you, you about music in general, that you really dig music up until that uh, around 1983. But, but you have, I guess you have a problem with music after that. And, and I just wondered, <laughs> is this sort of a general statement? I mean, you haven't heard anything post-1983 that you find, you know, worthy musically? I- explain this. I mean, there's some things, um, some prejudices. You know. um, I, I have a problem with, with, the, with the digital sound. Okay. I, right. I'm not a great fan of the digital sound of of, of the it. digital keyboards, of the of the keyboards with the micro tuning, and the drums with the with those new kind of skins and the new symbols. I'm I'm super paranoid about sound, mm-hmm. yeah. but it's of course there's some things that I, I okay I see here and there. But not not something that I'm listening in my house. In, in the moment, I have pleasure trying to to learn something from the art. Mm. It's it's something that I aesthetically really are not my cup of tea. The thing that happens after a DX7 keyboard, I might say. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I had a feeling it had something to do with the recording process and and you know digital versus analog, but I I wasn't sure if because uh, because there's there's been some really great music that's come along obviously since 1980. I mean obviously lots of great stuff, but it's more it's more the actual recording process, right? For you? Yeah, because for example, I don't know, I have a huge problem with five string bass, for example. Interesting. Five yeah. string bass, my gosh, man, it's wonderful for a barbecue for me. <laughs> it's a barbecue, really, really, it's perfect. I, mean, <laughs> I, can't, I can't hear that the B bass. I mean, that thing. Oh my gosh! When I hear the the, the fifth string, it's it's it sounds already. Oh, it's prohibited. Like <laughs> it's, yeah. it's difficult sometimes. Um, but I mean, yeah. That's okay. That's lots, lots, lots of lots of things. But isn't it while you're while you're on while you're talking about the bass right now? Isn't it really interesting how, you know, you're you're finding that with uh, the five string, but now with the six string basses and how that particular yeah how that particular instrument how how it's evolving. My gosh, the thing is 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 more than hell, isn't it? That that thing, the six string is is even funny. To be honest, I mean, I me, <laughs> it's even funny. That thing is a, is a bass guitar. Um, um, it's different. I mean, there's a, a, a different, um, a different approach to it. I might say. I think. Yes. But yeah, there's well, nothing yes. from there that that is something that gives me any emotion. I mean. Yeah. But for for as I said, for a barbecue, the six string. It, <laughs> <laughs> really, to, to make some ribs. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think our next trip is going to be going to Rio to eat some ribs on a five-string bass <laughs> with Ed Mata. 
that's, Sounds good to that's me. That's deal. That's wonderful. This <laughs> that's a deal. Small red more than Pete Townsend in in nineteen sixty seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we would love seriously to go down to Rio and just to, to check it out. It's it seems so beautiful, and we'd like to just uh, one time to get out there, Rick. You know, like yeah. a big, big, <laughs> field trip. There's a, a, a huge AOR atmosphere a lot, like Hawaii. I mean, like it's it's, yeah. it's huge inside. Wow. I mean, in the city, you feel it. I mean, you feel the yeah. lifestyle and, and and everything. You know, it's funny you say that because this this feel it, it's almost a global thing now. And what you're saying, you know, when you mentioned Japan. And they are so immersed in this for for such a long time. And Scandinavia, and, and Scandinavia, and and England, and South America. It's it's almost a universal resurgence of that genre. And and uh, I, my point here is that a couple months ago, oh no, actually last month, me and Rick were in Chicago to to uh, be able to hang out and listen to Bluey Maunik and Incognito. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, we've re- interviewed Bluey, but uh, we just saw him in, like I say, we saw him recently. And it brings us to you because you've actually worked with him. What do you think about his music? How did you collaborate? Oh, I love his music. Since since his early stuff with mm-hmm. Light of the World and, and the Warriors, his early bands, mm-hmm. uh, um, what's the name of that band? Uh, Freeze. Freeze. Yeah. Um, on rough trade label and, and incognito for me he's the um, Norman Connors and Maurice White of yeah. the 90s he's an exception of, of, of that comment that I say oh I don't, I don't like music from nowadays yeah yeah he, you're he, right he's an yes. exception because he works with the with the roots I respect which is real instruments and real singers, real musicians, there's no gimmicks. I mean, there's no no programming, no nothing that is kind of, I mean, yeah. So it's pretty much real. I like Incognito a lot. Yeah, it's a, it, what an amazing style. <clears throat> what I love about that band is, and he talked to it about the stage, about how he's over the past, I believe, 20 or 30 years, he's been... He actually bringing new people on, and he's evolved. I mean, he's had hundreds of people. Uh, how many was it, Rick, that he had uh, that had performed? I think or in the band, there's been like a, around a thousand people. It's amazing. That's what he said on stage. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. That's it's wonderful. That's why I relate to Norman Connors and Maurice White as a producer too, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's as 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 someone that makes soul funk. On a very sophisticated way, I mean, very yes, very sophisticated. You know, we, you know, we in, in talking about the style and the feel and sophistication. You know, we love your style. We've been uh, very immersed in your music for the past few days, getting reacquainted again with it. And uh, you know, we know that you write pretty much all your music, and you can almost play every type of instrument, and you arrange, you produce, and you know, when it comes to your writing and the music and um, where do you begin? Tell us about your writing process. Do you begin with the groove, the lyric, or you know, or everything? Tell us what goes on as you begin to create music, Ed. Yeah, I, I begin pretty much with a chord progression. Yeah. Usually it's a chord progression, uh, piano or acoustic guitar, 
usually uh -huh. the piano, and then there's a melody on top of it. Um, it's very rare to have a melody before. Yep. Usually I need some chords or maybe two chords or a chord progression or, or maybe I, I live with some chords for, for months. Yep. Even searching for something inside those chords. Yeah. Do you record as you create? Do you record everything so you don't forget things? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I record. Yep. I, used, I use the mobile phone nowadays. I used to, to, to record with those small recorders, tape recorders. Yeah. And when I, when I was younger, I, I used to remember everything for, for sure. Before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the other instrument that you command very, very well is your voice. Um, you know, it's really smooth. It's a, it's a big voice. It's, uh, you know, when... Can you tell us when you remember that you first discovered? Did uh, somebody tell you that you could sing, or did you say, "I like to sing. I know how to sing"? And when when, when did you find out that you had that voice? Well, to be honest, um, I found out about my voice trying to imitate uh, Ronnie James Dio and David Coverdale. It, it, <laughs> wow. it was uh, I, I was a drummer on a, on a hard rock band, and I was singing yeah. uh, Black Sabbath. Ronnie James Dio ears repertoire in Rainbow and and White Snake and Deep Purple Coverdale ears. Yeah. Wow, interesting. <laughs> That's some tough stuff. That's tough yeah, stuff to say. It was sing. it was my holy diver. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was sort of the thing for me. I mean, it was the drums and then sing like this. Uh, and then after came Stevie Wonder and Donny Hathaway, which is my favorite singer ever. Uh -huh. But um, yeah, it was it was Dio before, <laughs> and I love them until today. I love this stuff too. This it's, it's complicated to sing rock. It's it's yeah. tough. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's like play drums and and sing for rock. My gosh, it's like running from lost from LA to New York. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I, I I play drums and I studied percussion, but if I try to sing when I play, I, I just am not that coordinated. No, I can't think. Of, I can't think of. I mean, think of the guys that that Phil, have been able to do it well. Don Henley, well, Phil Collins, Phil yeah. Collins, yeah, Buddy Miles, yeah, yep. yeah, exactly. But there's not many that can can do that like that. You know, it's tough. <laughs> well, hey. Ed, we want to focus on uh, your your recent work, the past couple of albums, your 2013 AOR album, and of course your most recent Perpetual Gateways. And let's start with AOR. And uh, all we can say is that every track on this album is masterful. And, and quite frankly, that's the album that I learned about you. I didn't know about you prior to that, but AOR just sucked me in. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> and uh, I actually, we actually played many of these tracks over and over when we first heard them. And you know from uh, Players of Love to Simple Guy to Farmer's Wife. The album just truly flows like just a great AOR record. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. I, I might say this is my favorite album. Yeah. From 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 everything I recorded in my life since 1988, my first album when I had had 15 years old. Mm -hmm. It was a funky band called Connexion Japeri, my first album. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, 
But since then, uh, my favorite album is AOR for sure. Let's get into it a little bit because, um, you know, I, I, one one track that really, um, you know, really hooked me was uh, Lost in the Night. The horn arrangements are just beautiful, wonderful work and um, great feel. It's It's got that beautiful Steely Dan vibe and, you know, the horns re- remind me. And, of course, I'm not saying this uh, in a bad way. I'm saying this in a complimenting way. It reminds you, of course, of the Steely Dan uh, vibe, uh, a Michael Leonhardt or Roy Hargrove approach to, to arranging. You really made it your own. But but talk to us about the horns. In most of your recent records, the two that we're talking about, the horns really take a very prominent role in, in how you construct it. Do you arrange the horns? How did you learn how to arrange horns? Yeah, I, I used to make horn arrangements in the piano. Mm-hmm. But for AOR, it wasn't me. It was another guy. It was Jesse Sadok, a great uh, trumpet player. Okay. And he plays in this symphony here and everything. Yeah. And he's great. He was the arranger for, for that album. He did a great job. He did a wonderful job on the arrangements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's deep. He's, he has a full understanding of music. Yeah. And we're listening to... Uh, Lots of things um, that harmonically were the direction I was searching for. Something in that um, many album, Gil Evans, Oliver Nelson, uh, Ernie Wilkins, kind of stuff. I mean, that uh, yeah, Johnny Pate. Right. That, that kind of sound. Yeah. And, yeah. This influence is, is huge is- because... Um, I love Steely Dan. It's it's my favorite. If I have to choose one album in my thirty thousand collection, it's Asia. Asia, sure. yeah. <laughs> that that's impressive to coming from a guy that has thirty thousand albums. <laughs> yeah, I choose it. I choose it very fast. Yes, you did. To to uh, to um to an island or something. I'm, if I have Asia, I have everything. Yeah, I have everything I love. I have. Soul, funk, rock and roll, horns, harmony, intel- intelligent lyrics, and storytelling—lots of things. Yeah, I, I mean, I, so I agree with you. Ed. It's it's my favorite album of all time as well. Yeah, for me, it's wonderful. Yeah, you know, let's talk about the instruments because you know, um, you know, at the very core, we're finding that the very core of the, of a lot of AOR music, Steely Dan music, is we find the roads. And, um, you know, when, when did you pick up your first roads? Do you remember when you first started playing the, actually not listening, but actually picking up and playing your first roads? It was in my first album. Mm-hmm. It was before my contact with Steely Dan. Okay. Uh, the roads came to me pretty much because Max Middleton and, and Max Middleton, the UK piano pl- player, that used to play for Jeff Beck Group and those albums, Wired and Blow by Blow. And so it was because of him. He was the very first that it was all the, the sound of the roads. Yeah. That creamy sound and everything. It was Max Middleton wow. uh, for me. Uh, and, and, and already my first album, there's lots of roads with strong... Um, vibrato 
going wow, 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 like a, like a dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So tell us a little bit about when you play your roads. Uh, first of all, how many do you own? Do you own your own roads, uh, or do you own a couple, or what do you have in your your artillery? Yeah, in fact, I used to have four roads before. Mm -hmm. Um, I have just one now, okay. which is the roads I used to rent to record my albums. Yeah. Just the, really, after the roads I played in River Sound Studio, the roads from, from Donald Fagan, yeah. this is the best roads I ever saw in my life. I mean, I don't have this with my instruments. I have bass, I have guitars, I uh, have lots of keyboards. But usually I rent, I don't know, I wallet say, my wallet says it's not so good yeah. for my standards. I mean. And I have an AOK clavinet and lots of synthesizers. But this road sounds brilliant. I mean, you, you go with it almost flat and it sounds very bright, bright very green, green. Huh. Almost in, in that similar vein as as dynamite that guy that used to yeah. change change the roads for jay graydon and, and and lots of people i mean that you hear clean clean sound very yeah. it's it's not the sound that fagan used to have yeah. uh, it's, it's thing it's more david foster jay graydon thing huh isn't it interesting how a roads can have such personality. I mean, you hear it all the time that they vary from studio to studio. I like this one. I don't like this one. And you, when you find the one that you have, you really stick to the one. Isn't that true? Yes, yes. And and it's funny because when Rhodes came out, most of the players in the in, in the U.S. Um, people, I don't know, people. I, I remember that I have lots of old magazines, old downbeat magazines. Yeah. And I don't remember who said that. I think it was Ray Charles that said, "Oh, I sound, I sound like, like everyone when I play Rhodes. It's like that's not exactly an a, a Rhodes idiom, but after people invented that, I mean, yeah, with lots of, with lots of players, I mean, that has different approach for the Rhodes. Yeah, very interesting." Yeah. Hey, on the song uh, Dondi, you feature the amazing guitarist David T. Walker, and uh, uh, that's Eddie and I both love this track. It, it just it just grooves so heavy. Oh yeah, I like I like oh I love David T. Walker. It's it was a dream to work with him. I was thinking about uh, a special guest, in a David T. Walker, one of my favorite guitar players. I mean, he's like. He has that um, that thing that Cornel Dupree and also few up church. These kind of guys. Yeah. Uh, that thing is is not jazz. It's not blues. It's not soul. It's very particular. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a case. Uh, he's full of style. I mean, we can we can remember that wonderful uh, quote from Orson Welles. Uh, more than a lucky star, you need style. Is mm -hmm. that thing is uh, David T. Walker? You hear just pow, a band from him, you know it's him. Yep. It, the sound is pretty much him. Uh, it's incredible. My son and I were in the car, 
And I was listening to Dondi one day, and, and he, he asked me, he's 13 years old, and he said, he goes, Dad, what is Dondi? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I thought about it for a second. I said, <clears throat> listening to lyrics, I believe it's the name of someone. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, the, the lyrics are from Rob Gallagher. Okay. Um, from UK. Yep. Yeah, it's a character. Okay. I found out that Dondi was a comic character from the 30s. Really? Yes, from UK. Huh. It was a, a, a comic character from the 30s. Interesting. See that yeah, I didn't even think about. It. I didn't even know that at all. I, I just assumed either. it was like the name of a uh, a girl, a girl or, or a woman or something. Right. Yeah, this is more a nerd, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of our listeners are wondering. Now we know what that song's about. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it's more expensive now. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> exactly. The price just went up. <laughs> Well, hey, Ed, while we're talking about uh, this track, Dondi, from the AOR album that was released back in 2013, let's stop for a second and uh, let's check it out. Uh, this is the track Dondi from our guest today, Ed Mata, on Inside Music Cast. Don't eat. 
know, uh, on on the smile on the smile track, you know, you actually this is where uh, Bluey Maunick, uh plays. Uh, he helps out with some guitar, and yeah. o- overall, this track is just a whole mix of a pure funk. It's just uh, so funky, clean, very clean recording. I mean, we're gonna we'll get talk to you about your recording approach, but uh, even the snare, it's it's just clean and crisp. Um, but let's take time out and tell us about uh, the keyboard, your, your clav parts that you arranged, because uh, and also that bass line. Who plays the bass line? And because that is one amazing um, uh, bass line that you have on Smile. Yeah, I, I, I wrote the bass line as I usually I do the bass lines because I, I play a little bit of the bass, so I played the the bass lines already um, when I record the demo tape, even if it's horrible the the, the, the way I, I played some things mm-hmm. and, and but it's there and um, the, the bass player is Robinho Tavares he's a great bass player he's um he he he's the only guy I know that is looking to that kind of Chuck Rainey Jerry G Mott really yeah weeks. um Wilton Felder that's cool, that kind of muddy, cloudy mm-hmm. bass. I mean, that bass before Marcus Miller. Yep, the, you're right. The, the electric bass before Jaco. Before, they are great, but before those guys, be, before that, before the bright sound of the new strings. Yeah. I mean, people that use strings with 20 years old, James Jameson, things like this. Yeah. I mean, so wow. he's he, he's very special. Yeah, it what it uh, it really makes the track. I mean, it's consistent. He's on every single note, and and uh, maybe I just recommend that everybody who's listening to it pull out that that track again, smile and listen to that wonderful work of, of the bass. But uh, it's really cool. Hey, you you released AOR in both Portuguese and English. Um, not that it really matters much. It doesn't matter to me which one it is, but um, is it fair to say that you wrote everything first in Portuguese and translated because uh, you've done that on different projects? No, it's different. Um, the lyrics for the Portuguese uh, version, uh, I didn't wrote them. Um, it was uh, it was written by several lyrics writers from Brazil. Okay. Including my wife, Edna. She, she's the one that makes okay. my art. My art covers since '92. She's a um, comic book uh, uh, writer and drawer, things like this. Really, that's wonderful. Oh, so she she came up with the idea for Dondi, right? No, no, no. Because <laughs> it's in English. It's yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I mean, the Brazilian version <laughs> of Smile, for example, uh-huh. which is called Marta. Okay. And it's it's a it's a it's a sci-fi. Um, no, a, a spy, a spy story. Wow. Uh, 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 um, like men from Uncle, things like this. Sure. Well, you know, um, sticking with that same conversation here about Portuguese and English, you know, from a, a lyrical perspective, tell me about the uh, the challenges making you know those lyrics fit when you translate them from Portuguese to English. I mean, in terms of like meter and rhyme, how, how does that work when you're translating that and making those fit? Yeah, in fact, it wasn't translated because uh, Rob Gallagher, the guy that wrote the English lyrics, they are absolutely different. Ah, okay. They okay. talk about, 
Uh, different things. D- okay. Different. They are absolutely different lyrics. Interesting. That's neat. so. It's like yeah, absolutely different. I would have never known that <laughs> because I was trying to avoid this idea of 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 translation. Yeah, yeah. But it would seem to me as if you're um, whether it's English or Portuguese that the words that the lyrics still have a rhythm. So maybe the the meanings are different, but do the rhythms and the syncopations and the and uh, you know what I mean? Don't does that say that stays pretty much the sim at least similar, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'm, I'm I'm military with this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it must be the same. I mean, the, the idea was to be the a same album. Like I don't know, I record in Turkish or in Japanese yeah. or something. I need the same melody, like. You know, you have that melody, and then you need to stick to it. I mean, I I think so. Yeah. And it's pretty much the same. But for the new one, I, I, that's, that's funny because my English is pretty much naive, very simple. And, but I wrote my first lyrics in almost 30 years career in English for the new album, Perpetual yeah. Gates. Right. Knowing what we know about you and uh, how you, you know, have such an excellent taste and admiration for music, you're a critical listener and the fact that you live and breathe music, I'm curious to know your preferences when it comes to recording, you know, from a technical perspective. Now, you mentioned a second ago that, you know, you're, you're more of a fan of, obviously, the analog recordings, you know, and, and, uh, but are you partial to that? And, and do you stay close to the recording process or, or do you enlist the right engineers and people you trust? Tell, tell me about your recording process. Do you still record analog? Mm-hmm. And uh, how involved are you in the engineering of that? No, the studio is in my house. Okay. The studio is here. The studio that I record my albums and okay. I and everything is inside my house. Wonderful. Yeah. Do you engineer I, those yourself, or, or do you uh, have do you have help with the engineering aspect? Yeah, yeah, I have engineers. Okay. Uh, uh, professional engineers, and um, m- my problem with the digital, to be honest, I'm uh, recently I'm using some programs that I really like from the digital world. Okay. That's because I record. I record digital. I record on Pro Tools, mm-hmm. of course. Okay. And and it's uh, actually I have a sixteen tape machine. Okay. Um, but it's it's too expensive. It's complicated. Yeah. And there's a new plugins, uh, like tape simulation things like this. Right. That if you have the right time to get the sound of it, that thing sounds like the old machines. Mm-hmm. A lot. Sounds perfect. Wow. Yeah. So I mix in my house with the whole time I can have in my studio. And, and I just, I, I, I don't record drums here. I record drums in another place. Mm-hmm. And then, but for example, for, for Perpetual Gateways, I recorded absolutely everything in, in, in LA. Okay. And then I came to my house to mix that. Yeah, interesting. You know, while you're talking about uh, your studio and recording, let's talk about your 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 voice and how you mic it. 
Um, you know, people have different preferences for the mics. What's your favorite mic that you use, uh, and how do you mic your your voice? Yeah, actually, I don't have the the mic I like. <laughs> <laughs> what, Which what, one do you want? <laughs> Which is what is that? It's the Neumann U forty seven. Ah, yeah, yeah. It's Neumann U forty seven that I used to rent mm -hmm. from a guy mm -hmm. that he's a microphone collector. Okay, I have uh, Neumann. Uh, 149. Okay, those are nice. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty good. I mean, they're like Technique's turntable, isn't it? It's you like know, uh, hey, Ed, we, we interviewed uh, Al Schmidt, the engineer. You know Al? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was telling us that when he records double bass, which that's his favorite instrument to record, he said the, the 149 is his kind of his go-to mic when he records uh, – a double bass and and other instruments too. I even talked about recording yeah. a, a French horn with an M one forty nine. So anyway, yeah, I, I just thought I'd throw that out there. It's a great mic. Yeah, a lot. I remember when I recorded my third album. I remember I was on Warner Brothers that period, but um, EMI Studios were kind of close, and they they gave to me lots of U forty seven microphones. Uh huh. To, to record. So we use that for drums, for piano, for lots of things. Yeah. Because the sound is so clean. So, I mean, Al Schmidt, my gosh, he's, he's one of my heroes. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's, he, he, started, he started with Henry Mancini, right? He, he started right. recording with Mancini and yep. he's brilliant. He's one of the best. I mean, he's one of the... Like Rudy Van Gelder, the, the next generation, isn't it? The, the, after Rudy Van Gelder. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, Perpetual Gateways, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, but before we talk about the music, I want to talk about the cover. Um, it shows you in the cover with and uh, a building in the back of it. Uh, it, almost, it almost reminds me of Gaudí's Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, but yeah. it, it looks different. What is that building? Can you identify that building? That thing is is Watts Towers in Los Angeles. Ah, okay. I couldn't right. make it. Look at that. Laymark Lay Park, Lay Park. Yeah, okay. Well, it makes sense because, you know, as you said a little while ago, that Perpetual Gateways was your first album that you recorded here in the U.S. So tell exactly. us, yeah, why did you make that move? Why did you have to do that? What was the, what uh, set everything up so you could come here to record? I mean, that thing. First started um, with the with the record company in Germany, Membran. Okay. They came with this idea: what, Would you like to record in U.S. and things? I said, Yeah, of course. I mean, in fact, I recorded an album in the early '90s uh, in the U.S. that was never released. Uh, I recorded an album with Eddie Gomez, Lenny White, uh, Anthony Jackson, Steve Ferron. Um, David Spinoza guitar, um, what else? Chuck Rennie, Bernard Purdy. And it was recorded at River Sound Studios, uh -huh. yeah. Donald Fagan Studios. But it never came out, and I recorded some of these songs again with other musicians. Interesting. But, but, but I mean, this is this LA project with Kamal Kenyatta, my friend, that Another different thing in my career is to have a producer. I mean, actually, I had a producer just once in my life, which wasn't a, a good experience, but the album went platinum. 
So for the record company, it was wonderful. But for me, it was a it was a strange situation. But right now, I I choose the idea of having the the producer and Kamal Kenyatta is someone. It's like a brother. Working with him was pretty much like like a, like a like a duel, you know, because uh, his way of thinking is pretty much similar, mm-hmm. and the taste and the level of the conversation. I remember we were talking about the TV series from from John Cassavetes, uh, Johnny Staccato. Okay, that he's like a he's like a jazz man that he's a detective to a black and white. Um, TV series. Yeah, yeah. Same period as Route 66 and, and Naked City, like this. Right. So, I mean, the level is was co- culturally high. It wasn't a, a producer inside the studio trying to find a hit. He was trying to find the same place. But only, it only took you, like, I think one week to record Perpetual Gateways in L.A. and you invited exactly. you invited in some amazing musicians to join you, like you know Patrice Ruchin on keys and Smitty Smith on drums and others. And you know, coming off of that West Coast vibe on on AOR, what did you want to accomplish with this particular record? Because it it is pretty jazz heavy in the back. Yeah, it it has a um, it it's related to the material I was writing in the early two thousand. Yeah, my my instrumental vocal album Dwitsa. That was released in UK, yep. and also another one called Ice Talon. So these two albums are pretty much jazz-inspired albums. And the funny thing is that AOR took me just to mix. Took me six months. Wow. And and took me almost a year to record. It was a, a year, a year in, in something. I mean, you you were channeling uh, Steely Dan. Yeah, you were <laughs> a lot. I mean, it's the perfection is possible. I mean, yeah. you just need time, isn't it? Right. You just need time, and the idea for 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 perpetual gateways was pretty much more that kind of Auschwitz, um, Rudy van Gelder thing. Like, let's have a good sound of each piece each instrument with a good sound and good balance like cpi records i mean mm-hmm. they are not overproduced isn't it right i you know i kind of i think where you may be going with perpetual gateways is that it, it when i listen to it compared to the the slickness and and those you know the highly you know um you can tell you spent a lot of time on AOR in terms of the production value, but on this, it still sounds great, like you said, like an Al Schmidt type of record, but it sounds live. It sounds more live than AOR. Yeah, 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 pretty much, because it was recorded. The the, the rhythm section, mm-hmm. we record all together. I was playing the roads, yeah. and sometimes the acoustic, and changing, splitting with Greg Feeling Games or Patrice Russian. Uh-huh. And then we recorded that in two days. Wow, yeah. We, we, we recorded in two days and then two days for the vocals. And then one day for the horns. And that's it. Wow, wow that's amazing. It lasted, 
less than a week, yeah. You know, it's uh, you, you brought up Greg Fillingains, and, you know, he's been a past guest of ours here at Inside Music Cast, and, but that first track, it's, it's, it's called, I believe it's, it's Captain's Refusal that he plays on, right? He plays the claves on it. And, yeah, he uh, plays Clavin Rhodes, yeah, Clavin Rhodes, and several tracks, actually. Yeah, and, and wow, it's amazing what one guy can, can do. He, he's such an, a phenomenal player. Um, yeah. we've been following him for so many years and he's such a great guy, but he adds so much, you know, what do you learn, Ed, you know, from, from watching a guy like him, you're a player, but th- you know, this guy's at a different level when you get, uh, his caliber of playing. What, what can you learn when you hear him playing your music? What do you take away? Oh, for me, it's such a gift to hear him making those comps that I used to hear him doing for Fagan and for... Michael Jackson for Stevie Wonder for many people. And yeah. here my my chords, my changes with his sense is wonderful. It's such a gift. Also Patrice Russian that I'm a big fan for years. And oh, isn't that neat? She did this amazing, amazing job. I mean, the piano solo on Hypochondriac's Fun. Oh my God. <laughs> that, that, that one is Greg. That one is, is Was Greg. that Greg? Ah, yeah. Okay, Greg. so that, that wasn't her in the solo. That was Greg Fillingains. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, amazing. That it's, it's great. It, it, that, it, that thing is first take. Yeah, it always is. He makes us sick. <laughs> 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 he always does things on the first take, and I'm like, is, is that okay? You know, wow, that's just amazing. You know. <laughs> well, hey, Ed and Eddie, uh, if you guys don't mind, let's pause for a second because I want to play a track from uh, Perpetual Gateways. Um, which is the new album, of course, that Ed has released earlier this year. And um, this is a track that I know Eddie really likes. This is Hypochondriac's Fun from our guest today, Ed Mata, on Inside Music Cast. Survive. Never in life had a hard time giving all you have. They can choose your best. It takes more than a glance to believe. And those old lies, was it good for? They just start to dance Can't believe their lack of taste in groups Simulate the thrill Hypochondriac's fun Well done, secure, unsure Dance. Can't believe their lack 
From the recording standpoint, um, I noticed that compared to AOR, the way you have this album mixed is that your voice is really out front. You know, I, it, it just really yeah. stands sort of almost by itself up front and everything else is behind it. Was that purposeful? Did you do that on purpose? Yeah, a lot. It's pretty much um, kind of Johnny Hartman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that kind of, I mean, Frank Sinatra volume. Right. I mean, that. Donny Hathaway volume. Yep. Right, right. Donny Hathaway used to have his voice louder than Stevie Wonder because Stevie Wonder used to put his voice almost like a rock guy. Yeah. He puts he, he puts his voice like Robert Plant. Yeah. He puts he puts the voice very, very compressed in, in, in the middle of the thing. Very, very in the middle. And Donny Hathaway puts the voice like ah, the, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like Joe Train saxophone I mean. you know ed if, if i recorded an album and i had to sing i would put my voice behind everything <laughs> <laughs> i would put it in the back garage yeah as a matter of fact i might not even put it on the album that's rock and roll and, and in fact i mean that's cool of having the vocal the voice if you have less voice the band sounds bigger, isn't it? Sounds oh, yeah. stronger. Yep. And if you have more vocals, you have that kind of vocal album, isn't it? Sure, but with your voice, it's so strong and so it has such a presence. You know, it has such such body and depth to it. Uh, that gruff voice. I mean, and and you start not all the tracks, but there are some tracks here that you really get your range. Up there, um, what talk about the the vocal range? How does this um, does it vary from from this perpetual gateways to uh, AOR? You you push your voice a little bit more, didn't you? Yeah, maybe. I think um, yeah. These two albums, that's something funny. Uh, before, um, I never change a key of the song, the key, the original key that I wrote. Okay. And then I started to think, oh, but, but I, I would like to sing higher, to have my voice with more more bright, natural bright. 
So um, songs like, I don't know, Simple Guy, I wrote that song in, on a different key. Yeah. And yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm paying more attention to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's a there's a track, and I believe this is the track where it features uh, Patrice uh, Russian on the roads. And it's a forgotten nickname. It's a it's a, am I correct? Yeah, I know. In fact, it's me playing roads. Gotcha. It's me playing roads and her playing acoustic. Okay. It's uh you know it's it really reminds me of a beautiful you know it's almost borders on a Richard T track you know the roads are so and the brushes of the drums and it's beautiful and then then all of a sudden Hubert Laws comes in and I'm a huge Hubie Laws fan tell us about working with Hubie Laws and the flute it was it's a wonderful track oh it was incredible because this is this is the most um, harmonically the most complex song of the album is this one. It's beautiful. For, forgotten nickname. It has that kind of Michel Legrand. Yeah. Influence, I mean, the chansonnier um, thing. Um, then in, in Hubert, I went to, to his house, but we were talking about other things. We were talking about Chopin because he loves classical music. And we were talking about Fouquet, Debussy, Stravinsky and everything with Kamal, the producer, which is his big friend for years. And then Hubert just saw the charts, the harmony charts with complicated changes. I mean, uh, 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 there's a chord. In the beginning of the song, it starts with an E, E minor, seven major, and then an E seven major with five aumented. Wow. The, the way it changes with the melody, it, it, it goes smooth. But to improvise, respecting the chords, yeah. it's, not, it's not easy. Oh, well, beautiful. Not, and he went there like, blah, 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 blah. I mean, he comes with a classical music approach. Wow. It fits so beautiful. It's just such a wonderful track. Well, you know, the, the like I mentioned a second ago, the back half of the album is pure jazz, and I know that jazz is, is near and dear to your heart. And uh, do you? I'm curious about the horn arrangements because there's there's some really incredible parts on like the tracks of Town and Flames and uh, uh, and the track I remember Julie and uh, Town and Flames. Uh, that one is uh, my favorite track in the album. I just absolutely love the way your horn players just go off and riff. And uh, I was curious about like like the flute solo, the trumpet solo. They both really stuck out. And uh, what? Uh, uh, t- tell me about how you actually let those players go. Did they, was that all? At, you know, was that all improvisation, or did you have things charted? Did you did you have them? Did you lead them in a certain direction? Tell us about how you let them go on the, on those tracks. No, not at all. I mean, they, they, it was a very fast, a straight jazz, fast straight jazz. That hiff, that kind of Strata East, kind of Charles Tolliver hiff, that thing. Right. And the horns, I mean, I, I, wrote, I, I wrote the horns very much on top of of the piano in fourths, so using fourths. Yep. Okay. And then, 
and the improvisements, it was, I mean, Hubert and Patrice Russian, um, it was freedom. It was, they, they, they have the charts. Yeah. Because, uh, the A part is kind of more thing, like a, like a D minor thing. And then we go to the G major and G altered and, and then goes to another part. Um, that the horns, the trumpet makes that fat fella, fat fella, fat fat, that kind of right. mm-hmm. Stan Canton, Shorty Rogers yep. thing mm-hmm. on top of something that is more related to spiritual jazz, right? which you never hear that kind of phrase together with that modal approach. That fat fella, fat fella, fat fella, fat, that very West, West Coast jazz Sure. Together with the East Coast um, political uh, Afro-American jazz. Yeah. Well, hey, guys, if you don't mind, let's pause one more time because I do want to play one more track from Perpetual Gateways. And uh, this is a track that comes uh, a little further down uh, on the track list on the album. Uh, this is uh, on the on the portion of the album where, where you can tell that Ed is really getting into some heavier jazz. And uh, again, this is one of my favorite tracks. This is A Town in Flames from our guest today, Ed Mata on Inside Music Cast. Oh, 
that's what they said Don't remember why Who has set the towering flames Hold me, hold me forever Squeeze me till I get lost You know, the final track is continuing on what Rick said about, you know, the the back end being very heavy on the jazz. It, it reminds me so much of Miles, pure modern jazz. You know, it has a little bit of the Brazilian feel in it, and it sounds as if Bill Evans and Cannonball Adderley is right there in the studio. It's a great, great track. Uh, for me, this uh, this track shows um, that how you approach the music. Um, and obviously, jazz is is almost the the spinal cord of, of your music. It's at the center of it. Would you agree or not? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just such an important uh, editorial thing in my life. Yeah. Something that changed my life musically. Yeah. I started to be into Broadway music. For example, I wrote a musical in Brazil. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote a musical pretty much... Pretty much inside the Broadway thing, I mean, in, in, to that Bernstein, Stephen Sondheim style. And it's, it's something that came to me because of jazz. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. You know, while you're, on the, while you're talking about some other types of work that you, you've been doing, talk to us, let, let's get away from the albums a little bit. We're about ready to finish here. But tell us about the other types of music that you're, that you're doing other than your records right now because you've actually done some some commercial work some some translation work even for some disney projects or tell us what what is what keeps ed mata busy during the the day or during the normal year yeah i make lots of uh soundtracks here in brazil Mm -hmm. for um, animation movies because our relation me and edna with comic books and animation and things yeah and because I'm I'm a comic book collector too. That, really? that, that's that's <laughs> wow. that, yeah. And we met each other on a on a comic book fair. Wow, he, that's funny. <laughs> and then I mean, um, yeah, it's um, I I I make I, I wrote that musical um, with several actors and everything. I didn't wrote the, the script. Yeah, just. Just the songs and and the, and the instrumental tunes. Well, that's neat. You probably you and Edna probably are, are collaborating on a lot of things together, aren't you? Oh yeah, yeah, a lot. 
Wow, that's neat. And I'm curious, how often do you play live? How often do you perform uh, shows there in, in your area, in, in Rio? In Rio, not a lot nowadays. I play mostly in Europe. I went to Europe this year like 10 times. Yeah. Wow. So Europe is my, my biggest market. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Germany, um, France, UK, um, Switzerland, and Netherlands. Do you travel yeah. with a band? Yeah, they, I have a, a, an European band already five years. Really? Wow, yeah. that's nice. Uh, I have an European band that I work with these guys. They're great, great musicians. Yeah. Great player. One French guy, one guy from Finland, one guy from the, the, the musical director is from Germany, and the drummer from from, from Netherlands. Yeah, wow, interesting. When was the last time that you were in the States uh, touring? Have you toured here? Yeah, I toured um, in the United States, I might say, in my own, on my own, um, just three times in my career. Okay. Wow, we need to have I, you back here again. Um, I played, I played AOR in in the U.S. So I played in 2013, 2014. Wow. 2013, I played San Francisco, LA, New York, Washington, Chicago. Yeah. 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 Well, we hope you come back sometime. Yeah, I'd, I'd love, love, to, <laughs> love, to, love to hear you perform live, you and your band. Do you, do you pick up players when you come to the United States? Do you have guys here that you, you pick up? No, no. I remember when I played, I went with the European band too. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully when you get back here, either, either you come here or we go there and we're going to have that barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> It's the five strings. The five string barbecue with Ed Mata. I love it. <laughs> I'm going to bring a six string and we'll, and we'll turn it into a swimming pool. <laughs> oh my god. Ed, this, is, this has been so fun talking to you. I, we've, like I said, we've, or Eddie said earlier, we've wanted to have you on the show for a long time. Yes. And, and uh, so glad you, you were able to spend some time with us. And we can't wait to uh, let our listeners hear this. And, uh, and, and we hope to hear more music from you again, you know, in the future, because uh, we, we love your stuff. We really do. Um, the latest album from Ed Mata is called Perpetual Gateways. It's a phenomenal. Um, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, a next, next recording that follows AOR. We recommend highly that you get your hands on these albums. Uh, Ed, where can our listeners get this, this album online? Oh, you can get it everywhere. I mean, from Amazon to Dusty Groove and in Discogs and Spotify's and iTunes, everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Good. Great, great. Well, Ed, thanks again for spending this all this time with us, and uh, uh, we'll stay in touch, and hopefully we can do this again soon. No doubt. Yes, please. Thank you so much. All, all right, right. Thank you. Good night, and, and thanks for being with us. Talk to you later. Okay. See you. See you. Ciao, ciao. All right. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Ed Mata for joining us on this episode of Inside MusicCast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Scott Gross, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, Yinka Oyelese, and Arnaud Legere for their support and content development. For the best in West Coast AOR, pop, jazz, and funk, tune in to Inside MusicCast Radio. Download the streaming app for Android and iOS devices, or listen at InsideMusicCast.com. Inside MusicCast is powered by Earshot Audio Post and Cabello Associates. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside MusicCast and Inside MusicCast Radio. Even though...
Even though 